1: From our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. This
2: is about
0: infrastructure
3: structure that can lead to economic growth for a generation. We need to make sure that we establish a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy.
0: Republicans have a great
4: chance of taking the House in 2022.
1: Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders.
3: The influencers. The insights.
5: We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back.
3: I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more
2: important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin.
3: Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthews. On Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where things remain unusually busy for the midst of summer here, lawmakers in the House preparing to head home tonight. The Supreme Court ending its term with two important rulings and President Biden spending the day in surfside, Florida following the tragic building collapse there. We're going to talk about that coming up with Bloomberg political contributors, Jeannie Sheehan Zeno, and Rick Davis. And thank you for spending part of your Thursday with us on Bloomberg Radio. You heard it live, short time ago. President Biden speaking to reporters in Surfside, Florida, about the tragic building collapse. Having spent many hours there already today, he met with rescue crews and met with the families of those lost.
6: You know, they're realistic. I uh, it just brought back so many, so many memories. It's bad enough. It's bad enough to lose somebody, but the hard part, the really hard part is to not know whether they're surviving or not. Just not have any idea. When the accident took my wife and my family, the hardest part was, were my boys going to get out? Could they going to make it? Um, And not knowing.
3: Joe Biden in one of the most important roles that a president is called to fill as consoler in chief. And it's one this president knows a lot about as you heard, recalling today the tragedy in his own family.
6: As you know, unfortunately, I've done a lot of these circumstances where I've met with families who have had great loss. And what amazed me about this group of people was their resilience, their absolute commitment, their willingness to do whatever it took to find a to find an answer. I I, I walked away impressed uh, by their strength.
3: So what do we know about the cause of this tragedy? Do we know? Bloomberg White House correspondent Nancy Cook... Ask the president about that.
4: What did you learn, if anything, about the collapse of the building? Is there anything more you learned from investigators or the FEMA administration? No, it's
6: underway. I don't. uh, The director of FEMA is with me here. We don't have any firm proof of what's happened. There's all kinds of uh, rational speculation about whether or not the rebars were, were rusted, whether or not the cement... Uh, whether it's limestone or not, whether or not. But a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the families who survived talked about how upset they were that um, in the last years that they've been here, how uh, there was one condominium complex built across the street and a road was purchased. And while they were living there, they would hear the drilling and they feel their building moving and shaking. Uh, there are all kinds of discussions about whether or not um, they, uh, they thought that water level rising, what impact it had. Uh, and interesting to me, I didn't raise it, but how many of the survivors and how many of the families talked about the impact of global warming?
3: Global warming, climate change. It did come up, as I read... The story of the Terminal White House sets red line around climate goals and reconciliation. This keeps coming up. Talk about a rising sea level, potentially impacting structures like this along the coastline. Let's bring in Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis. It's great to have both of you with us here as always. Rick, I'd like to start with you on the job that the president has and had throughout the day today. It's one of these moments for the commander in chief, for the president of the United States. We've seen this happen repeatedly in times of tragedy where you have to put politics down. He was sitting shoulder to shoulder with Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who is no fan of Joe Biden. I don't know how Joe Biden feels about him, but this is one of the moments where a president is called to transcend politics.
2: Yes, I I don't think you could have someone who's had more experience uh, than uh, President Joe Biden in the category of uh, being able to connect with people uh, in a tragic situation like this and show empathy. Um, you know, not only as he talked about today his personal experience uh, with the loss of his family members, uh, but also uh, it's a role he's had to play throughout his career. He used to travel to war zones and talk to families about uh uh, military personnel who were lost in action. He's, he, as vice president, uh, played an important role in the Biden administration for eight years as someone who could go to these kinds of tragic situations, whether they were hurricanes or floods or uh, disasters like this, uh, to help uh, rally the rescuers and uh, bond with the family. So uh, he's had his share of experience in this, obviously not something anybody looks forward to, Uh, but he does
3: an extremely good job as uh, uh, empathizer-in-chief. Yeah, that's another way to put it, Jeannie. uh, This is something that we've seen some presidents do better than others. Uh, With Bill Clinton, we remember I Feel Your Pain. President George W. Bush was known for crying uh, with victims of tragedy when he would meet with them. A lot of people remember Donald Trump throwing paper towels when he went to visit Puerto Rico. These are the moments— That are difficult to prepare for
5: they are and I think whether you're Republican or Democrat you most people would agree that nobody is either as Rick was just saying better prepared either unfortunately personally or professionally or better at this part of the job than Joe Biden he It brings his faith. We saw that today. He's able to bring comfort. He's able to do it from all his professional but also all his deeply personal experience at this that he talked about today. So, you know, I think to the family's suffering, his you know, his ability to share that is so important. And for the state and the locality and the country as a whole, he does a very good job on that and he did that today and he showcased that. And as you just played the, the question from Nancy Cook I thought was a really, really good one yes. about where we are in terms of a cause and he said lots of speculation we don't know but to your point he was able to pivot off of the families talking about the issue of global warming and climate change which is something we shouldn't forget he's been talking about for his entire administration but in the last two days from wildfires to this it has been at the utmost of his agenda for the last couple days
3: well that's a great point too rick talking about the drought and the fires in the west yesterday now this today I want to tread carefully here. There's really not a direct line to the infrastructure debate, but when we're talking about provisions that prevent climate change, you're talking about a rising sea level. Is that appropriate to bring up right now?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, you look at uh, New York City, for instance, and recommendations for the city's uh, ability to uh, uh, survive rising levels in the Hudson and uh, East River uh, require building a wall 15 feet high in lower Manhattan. I mean, could you imagine? I don't think anybody's really excited about that, but these are really practical infrastructure issues, uh, especially for coastal communities uh, in our country and all around the world. Uh, But also, uh, regardless of how you look at it, whether it's driven by seasonal changes or by uh, climate change, uh, we have more extreme weather and extreme weather uh, deteriorates infrastructure. And so uh, a lot of what we're looking to repair through this infrastructure bill that's in front of Congress right now is as a result of more and more extreme weather hitting our infrastructure.
3: Jeannie, I can't help but to remember President Obama's visit to New Jersey following Superstorm Sandy. And I wonder Obviously, Ron DeSantis and his wife was there as well, the First Lady of Florida. They were there with Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden. Is there political fallout for the Republican governor of Florida for just appearing? I realize they didn't have a hug like Chris Christie and Barack Obama, but the optics here are important
5: they are and I I thought the same thing and you know Ron DeSantis who very well may run against Joe Biden if they both choose to run in 2024 certainly DeSantis is a leading contender behind President Trump for the Republican nomination and there he was in a very similar position that Chris Christie found himself in during Superstorm Sandy we all remember how well that sort of followed Chris Christie around with his Republican opponents claiming he had hugged uh, Barack Obama you know and I think Chris Christie's response to that was right I'm governor of the state of New Jersey we are in crisis and I'm going to look everywhere I can for support if it's from the federal government I'll take it and I think Ron DeSantis is doing a bit of that but it certainly it does create some political challenges for the governor as he maneuvers through this
3: well that's what happens Rick when when you want to be partisan and nobody gets along until there's a tragedy right
2: that's right, Joe. And, and, and the reality is it's kind of a good indication that we're starting to come out of this era that uh, even the idea that we have to worry about politics related to a natural or a man-made disaster – Um, You know, we we never used to think that way. And we've been through this hyper-partisan environment for the last 20 years. Maybe this is an indication that we can start coming out of it without retribution. Uh, There's plenty of other things to argue about. But maybe in cases like this, we can uh, put down the swords for a day.
3: Boy, there's a lot to be said there. I hope everybody hears what Rick is talking about, because it is time to grow up a little bit when it comes to the serious issues that are impacting our country. Bloomberg political contributors She Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis, I appreciate your tone and your comments on what's a very sensitive, obviously tragic story, but something we need to cover here as well on a normally political broadcast. Coming up, we have breaking news today on taxes from around the world. As over 100 countries endorse setting a minimum corporate tax rate, we're going to talk about the deal that happened at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development with Bloomberg's Laura Davison.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On
3: with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for being with us. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington where the term global taxation is echoing today after 130 nations endorse setting a minimum corporate tax rate, something we've heard a lot about, but to have 130 countries and jurisdictions get on board as news. The deal was brokered at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Jared Bernstein of the White House Council of Economic Advisors talked about it quite favorably today in an exclusive interview with Bloomberg's David Weston.
1: Not just for economic dis- diplomacy, but for fairness in the tax code, for multinational corporations paying their fair share, and for the American worker and the American middle class to get a fair shake out of a tax code. That has been leaning the other way for far too long.
3: We're joined to talk about it now by Bloomberg's Laura Davison. Thanks for being with us, Laura. This is a pretty important development here. It's one that the White House clearly is in favor of. What does the deal include?
4: Yeah, so this is this global minimum tax of, you know, 15 percent or more that we've been hearing about, you know, a couple weeks ago at the G7. Yep. They agreed to the broad strokes. We got a little bit. Further in the deal today, having 130 countries sign on, um, which is most of the countries that were uh, initially in these talks, there's a couple holdouts, including Ireland and Hungary, who say they can't agree to the deal yet. Um, so they, they they worked out some technical details. And, and next week, there's a G20 meeting. And the, G, the G20 is a group that's sort of overseeing, will sign off on a final deal. We expect uh, to see, uh, you know, sort of a larger agreement come out of that. And then they'll have to work out the technical details. And it'll be months and, or years until this is implemented. But this was a really big step. This has been years in the making. And it wasn't clear even, you know, just a couple weeks ago if a deal would be able to come together.
3: That's right. So at least 15%, though, that number stays the same. That's that's coming off the G7 with at least 15 Right?
4: Yes, that's the same. They set a little bit more uh, yeah, parameters around kind of the types of, co- of companies that will be included um, in uh, if for this minimum tax and how which countries will get to tax um, which companies profits. That's really the big question here of looking at how do we uh, not just allow companies to book profits and tax havens, but also um, actually book taxes where they are um, doing economic activity and where they have users and customers. They've worked out some of those details, but it's still not totally fleshed out. And we still don't know exactly how many companies will ultimately be pulled in.
3: So, okay, let's get to the the hard part here, which is implementation, right? This would involve, I'm assuming, 130 legislatures to also agree.
4: Yes. And as we know, uh, you know, just getting one legislature to agree on something is a a huge uh, (laughs) issue, Um, much less 130. So they, you know depends on the country exactly what they'll have to do and what can be done by, you know, their executive or their, their um, you know, finance ministry. Um, but for example, in the U.S., this will take legislation. Congress will have to approve this. Um, so this uh, is, you know, just sort of adds to the list of things that Democrats want to do by the end of the year in a reconciliation bill, um, pass a minimum global tax. Um, and really, they're up against the clock here. They want to get this done now. Uh, they don't want to be passing tax increases um, in an election year, which next year is the midterms. And Republicans have said, look, if we take back a majority, we don't like this deal. We don't want to implement this. So it's really, um, you know, if the U.S. is going to be involved, um, Democrats need to, to get something done quick, quickly. Wow.
3: Otherwise, we're there'll be 129 countries waiting for the U.S.
4: Yeah, and it's unclear exactly, you know, what happens if you have some companies, if some countries sign on and others not um, really. But you need sort of the, the big players. You know, you need U.S., you need the European Union, you need China, you need kind of the, the big economies to to participate or else uh, this deal doesn't really uh, have any force or isn't really in effect.
3: We're talking with Bloomberg's Laura Davison about this new endorsement of a global minimum corporate tax rate. Laura, what does it mean? Uh, For for instance, the White House's effort to hike corporate taxes here in the U.S., 15 percent is a far cry from 25 or 28
4: percent. Yes, this is, will something be something that will really, uh, you know, sort of play into the political discussions. You know, Biden has proposed for U.S. companies operating abroad that sh- they should pay a 21% rate, um, higher than the 15% that's being discussed for the rest of the world. So that's going to be a, a political tension point as they go forward. And that could also affect, you know, what the top domestic corporate rate ends up being. Biden has proposed 28%, but even, you know, we're hearing some rumblings from from some Democrats that they don't want something higher than 25%. So all of these discussions will be happening at exactly the same time. And it will be sort of a a crazy uh, sort of end of the year for for Janet Yellen as she's negotiating with, you know, 100 countries on one side, as well as, you know, 535 legislators in Washington.
3: Yeah. uh, So we heard from Janet Yellen on this. Can you tell us more about her feelings?
4: Yeah, so she has really been kind of the the key driving force behind this deal. She was the one who really brought this to the G7, said, hey, let's look at something at a 15 percent rate at least uh, for the minimum tax, which had been a um, a reversal from the U.S. position. Um, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, Trump secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary, Secretary had walked away from the talks um, last year, and it wasn't clear if the U.S. was going to participate. Once the Biden administration came in, Yellen has really led the way and sort of begun to engender some some better feelings from the negotiating partners here.
3: What will this mean uh, for multinational companies, the, the the big Facebooks, the alphabets, et cetera?
4: It ultimately means that they will probably pay more in taxes, and it will reduce a lot of the incentives that have been out there for a long time to, uh, you know, operate in some of these uh, countries with super low tax rates and say, look, you know, we're actually going to kind of match the economics of what's happening on the ground to where you're actually paying taxes.
3: Great. Bloomberg's Laura Davison. Thank you so much for coming along to help us make sense of it, Laura. I suspect we'll be talking about this again. Bloomberg has the best reporters in the business. Coming up, the Supreme Court ending its term with two important rulings today. We're going to pick through them, one on voting rights, another on donor disclosures. And we'll talk about them straight ahead here on Bloomberg Sound On.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew.
3: Thanks for being with us. The justices have left the building. The Supreme Court wrapping its nine-month term with a couple of important rulings today. We're going to focus on one coming up on voting rights in a conversation that we'll be having here on Bloomberg Sound On. Tomorrow morning will be a big one as we'll be talking jobs, I am sure, on this program as well. Bloomberg Sound On tomorrow will be joined by Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. So welcome to the program On this Thursday, an important day for the Supreme Court, as I mentioned, wrapping its term with a couple of important rulings. The first on voting rights that we want to talk about, voting six to three to uphold two Arizona voting provisions that include a ban on so-called ballot harvesting and allow the practice of rejecting ballots that are cast in the wrong district. Joining us now to talk about is June Grasso, the host of Bloomberg Law. You hear weeknights at 10 on Bloomberg Radio. We've got an expert Welcome, June. It's great to have you with us.
7: Nice to be here, Joan.
3: Challengers of these provisions said they discriminate against minority voters. What was the rationale for ruling against them, against the challengers?
7: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question because the rationale, I just talked to people about this case and they described it kindly as the majority opinion being kind of muddled and messy. So what Justice Samuel Lita who wrote the majority, said was that basically a lot of what wouldn't make up a good challenge to a voting law, and he said mere inconvenience wasn't enough to invalidate voting rules. A small disparity in the impact on different racial groups might not be enough either. So what he was saying is that these don't impose a substantial burden on minority voters that effectively block their ability to vote. He's raising the standard a great deal about what it would take to to challenge one of these laws and have it canceled out. And so the question would be basically whether they impose substantial burdens on minority voters that effectively block their ability to vote. It's a very high standard.
3: Sure is, what does it mean though for anyone from here trying to challenge voting laws?
7: it means it's going to be very difficult to challenge voting laws from here on out. The Supreme Court said it's very reluctant or showed it's very reluctant to second-guess state laws that might restrict voting. Basically said, you know, they're gonna be very skeptical from here on out about challenges like this one. And, you know, the standard is just very high here. And he didn't really offer a test. He What he did was offer a series of guideposts for judges to consider the totality of the circumstances. S- things like the size of the voting rules burn, the extent it departs from past practice, the size of racial disparities. And Justice Kagan, in her dissent, called Alito's list of guidelines a list of mostly made-up factors at odds with section two itself so um, the question was how far after the oral arguments i think most observers knew that the conservative majority was going to uphold these laws these restrictive arizona laws but the question was how they would do it how much they would take a bite out of section two in the way that they took, well, basically, they just scrapped Section 5. They gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 in the Shelby County case. So it's going to make it much harder.
3: June, President Biden was asked about this ruling as he talked to reporters today in Surfside, Florida. Here's what he said.
6: I think that it is critical that we make a distinction between voter suppression, and suspension, the ability of a state legislative body to come along and vote, their legislature vote, to change who is declared the winner, I find to be somewhat astounding. And this, of course,
3: follows uh, the attempt, the failed attempt, to handle this legislatively. Uh, Most recently on Capitol Hill, June, uh, Republicans never allowed that to even come to a vote.
7: Really, there it's... I think for Democrats going forward the only hope they have is to try to get some version of a voting rights bill passed perhaps to convince Joe Manchin that you know it's time to do away with the filibuster at least as far as voting rights cases because the Supreme Court really has gutted the Voting Rights Act now after this and any other challenges that are going to come to the court. You see which way they're going in these cases. And it's six to three. And there have been very few cases this term that have been six to three cases. The justices have managed in most instances to forge some kinds of alliances so that you didn't see so many. Six to three, which is now the new five to four. Used to be five to four, now it's six to three. That's right. And with the conservative majority here and so the question is why in this case couldn't they do that and I think it's because you know they're entrenched the Republicans are entrenched and the Democrats are entrenched in what they believe in and you know Chief Justice John Roberts was the one who wrote the Shelby County case gutting Section five of the Voting Rights Act. So it's it's not that things have changed that much on the court. This probably would have been a five to four decision uh, in other circumstances. But it's it's very serious. So I think that what President Biden is saying is you know we have to do something because remember the Georgia law not only does you know things like su- suppressing um, the vote vote as far as you know drop boxes and giving water to people on the line but it also gives the Republican legislature and the ability to to go into certain areas and actually come in and say, wait, we have to look at the way these votes came in after they came in. So possible changes after the votes came in, you're not going to have the secretary of state anymore in that position where he held the line. So that also has to be addressed. That is even more serious, I think President Biden was saying, than these, you know, the burdens that they're putting on voting in other ways.
3: June, we have less than a minute, but the other big story today is, well, what didn't happen? No retirements announced. you surprised? Uh,
7: I'm not surprised. I have to say I'm not surprised because I thought from the way that Justice Breyer was, first of all, he he hired new clerks for next term. Uh He really, in that speech he gave at, at Harvard, he seemed to say politics shouldn't be involved in in supreme court jurisprudence in supreme court anything so it seemed mm-hmm. to me as if he was giving off signals almost that he wasn't going to bow to the enormous pressure that you know democrats and particularly progressive democrats put yep. on him you know briar retire those big billboards and everything so i wasn't <laughs> so that surprised that.
3: but <laughs> this is why you listen to bloomberg law at night june could have told you june grasso thank you so much i'm joe matthew
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe
3: Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending some time with us on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Sound On. As we focus on this ruling on voting rights today from the Supreme Court, as we discussed with June Grasso, the court today ruling right down the middle, 6-3, that Arizona did not violate the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act. And this decision provides legal cover for Republicans as they push for new rules around the country ahead of the 2022 elections and we're joined by the panel. I want to hear from both Rick and Jeannie on this. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheenzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Jeannie, this, I guess, was no surprise to see it come down six to
5: three. It wasn't a surprise. We have to remember this was the first uh, year, the first Supreme Court term with three Trump appointees on the bench. The um, Amy Coney Barrett, the last to, to go on. She is not the person who granted certain most of these cases, but she certainly has had an impact. And of course, this is a really, really important day in American history, because now following the Shelby decision in 2013, you see the Supreme Court really essentially gutting, as you and June were talking about, this last remaining stalwart section of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, which means if Congress doesn't act to pass a voting rights bill And that's a big if it doesn't look like the court is going to step in when these states and localities pass restricting voting rights. And so that creates a real challenge. I mean, I'm thinking we're looking at July 4th in a few days. This is a time we celebrate American independence and the right to vote is critical for that independence.
3: Rick, there's no chance that that's going to happen in the legislature, is it? No, no chance. And and I'm
2: not, I'm not sure it needs to. I mean, I'm probably the one person you'll talk to today who's actually run elections in Arizona. And, and I can tell you right now, the two provisions that were taken before the Supreme court ballast harvesting and, and voters who vote outside their precinct are not voting rights act issues. I mean, like you got to really get it down into the nitty gritty. Do we really want people going door to door knocking on voters houses And getting their ballots and collecting them and then turning them into a voting location um, uh, in mass. It's just a really bad idea. It's called ballot harvesting. It's not allowed in virtually any state. Normally, you have to designate somebody to be able to pick up your ballot and they have to be a member of your family or something like that in other states. So I, I, I completely applaud what the Supreme Court did, because allowing people to go outside their precincts, why do we have precincts if we're going to allow people to just vote anywhere they want to vote? And so I, I'm not sure there's like so many big implications. Believe me, I've, I've spent most of my career with John McCain doing campaign finance reform and ballot issues. Mm-hmm. And a practical political consideration here is don't we want some rules that govern how we vote?
3: Justice Alito Uh, Rick said that this mere inconvenience line has really seemed to get a lot of people's attention. Not enough reason to invalidate voting rules. What are what are communities of color supposed to make of that?
2: You know, I I, I don't think it's even considered a inconvenience to require people to make a rain if they can't get to a ballot, a, a polling place, or they can't mail their ballot themselves. Is it really an inconvenience to to find someone within the rules of the state Uh, who can deliver your ballot. I mean, we're talking about a very small percentage of people who simply cannot do one of the two things that are allowed in Arizona in this case, and that is to mail your ballot or to actually drop it off in a designated location. And so, you know, again, I mean, I I think there are huge issues related to these laws passed by these states uh, uh, about uh, constraints on voting. This is not one of them.
3: Is there a a move here for the White House genie for Democrats in Congress knowing what just happened with an attempt at legislation?
5: There is, it uh, it is going to put a lot of energy behind moving forward one of these two bills. And I just wanna go back on what Rick said. I I think it's important to remember when Chief Justice Roberts wrote the decision in Shelby, he upheld section two, he said, keep it in place, strike down five, keep two in place. We protect voting rights by allowing people to litigate after the fact. The problem is this ruling, I don't disagree on the specifics of the Arizona law. The problem with this ruling is the burden is now on the challenger. The standard is so high now to challenge laws, it's going to be incredibly difficult to challenge them and get those overturned. And that's why I think there is going to be wind behind, more than there otherwise would have been if the court had gone another way, some movement in Congress. Because now the only hope for people who feel they've been discriminated against at state and local level is going to be a federal law. Because obviously, the federal courts, if they follow this decision, and they will, are not going to find any comfort in the federal courts under Section 2, which has largely been gutted now.
3: Jeannie, are you uh, disappointed that we did not get a retirement announcement today? Justice Stephen Breyer carries on.
5: <laughs> I have to say, you know, it's very hard to push somebody to retire. I am one of those people who called on Justice Ginsburg to retire. She obviously huh? didn't. She wrote a famous dissent in Shelby. Now we're facing Breyer. Um, you know, I do think, you know, it, it it is very tough to have these people stay this long. But I have a hard time telling somebody personally when they should retire. I'm not certain and that that call for those retirements didn't work against it. He's not the kind of person who's hmm. going to listen to that.
2: Yeah. Would you, Rick? Uh, no, <laughs> I think that the Supreme Court should be immune from these kinds of political shenanigans. And, and I would say that there's another way to change uh, these laws, and that's elections have consequences. If in the Arizona case, where the state Senate and state House are within a couple votes of one another politically, Um, if if that changes and Democrats take over, they write the rules uh, related to this this election or to these election laws. And so that is the proper place to litigate uh, election rules is on a state by state basis. It's called federalism. It's been a backbone of how we run our elections. It's not by either going to Congress or uh, by uh, being able to try and get the bench to litigate.
3: Jeannie, let's talk about voter ID for a minute since we're on this topic. It's been suggested recently that Democrats might be warming up to this idea. Congressional Democrats... Kind of softening the edge when it comes to something that was not even a conversation a couple of years ago,
5: and they should be softening to it. There's no reason. I mean, I'm going to date myself here, but if you went in to get a video at the video store, or you went in to get a you go in now to get a book at the book at the library, you need some kind of ID. Most Americans support a voter ID. I think Democrats should warrant to that. I even think that they should support this. For, you know, this for the people Act. I think HR one. when they go too far. But I want to push back a little bit on what rick just said i agree with him that you resolve these questions in a legislature but the prerequisite for that is you're able to have a fair and transparent voting system that doesn't discriminate against people on the basis of race sex gender or anything else and that is the problem here you do have states and localities that are passing legislation that is discriminatory and that's the problem
3: Rick, would it help the odds to handle this legislatively if Democrats used voter ID as as a more effective bargaining chip?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting debate. Um, You know, we've gone through so many cycles on voter ID where Republicans were suspicious that the federal government was going to track their movements. Now, Democrats are anxious about it. And I do think it's actually worth uh, a a national discussion about, because uh, if the Democrats could put it in play, I mean, something as simple as what we've talked about in the past is, uh, on these uh, COVID vaccinations, uh, it would be nice to be able to track all this stuff in some kind of a database. And right now, we don't even have a facility to do that on a national basis. So I think it's time to crack open this debate and see where it stands.
3: Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. In our remaining moments, I want to look ahead to tomorrow morning. We've got a big day here tomorrow with the jobs report coming out. Obviously, it'll be an hour before the bell, but we're looking at this through the the prism of politics here. The labor secretary is ready to go, and we know that the president is going to be speaking about this. Jeannie, why?
5: Well, this, this is big because the last few months, the numbers haven't been quite what they wanted. Or So expected. what if they're not
3: tomorrow? He's, <laughs> he's he's already got a speech schedule.
5: He, he's got a speech schedule. You know, it's a little bit dicey, but I think they are feeling confident. And of course, you know, if the numbers are what they're hoping and thinking they will be, they want to try to take some kind of credit for it. And I would say, as we look at your discussion about, you know, the, the, the tax around the world, this corporate tax, Janet Yellen has, I think, really, really made a name for herself she has been able to negotiate and work things that I think people didn't expect so they do have some things in this realm to celebrate
3: what do you think about that Rick you scheduled a speech before you know the number well, I think
2: he's got to give a speech no matter what the number is because his entire economic plan is starting to rest on these jobs numbers. They so do you have two interrupted it written? in the past. So you got to, yeah, exactly. You got speech one, good news, speech two, good news is even worse. So I, I think he's got to lean in. He's got a huge amount of work to do on Capitol Hill to get these big trillion dollar packages passed. And no matter what this jobs report is, he's got to lean in on it and try to sell it hard tomorrow.
3: Because you know the narrative, Jeannie, is going to be, if the number's not good, jobless recovery echoes to the recovery during the Obama administration.
5: That's right, and it's going to make him that much harder for him to push for the big kind of reconciliation bill he wants on something like infrastructure. It's going to be hard for him to get his legislative agenda through. So he's going to have to, to Rick's point, have two speeches ready that make the case for what he wants to do. And the fact is, he's got to make the case for these big bills that he's been pushing for.
3: Well, I will encourage everyone to listen to Bloomberg Radio at eight thirty to hear that number when it is released, and be here tomorrow. Obviously, we're going to have that as a major story, but we'll take a deep dive on that jobs report and look ahead in an interview with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis, thank you so much as ever for all the insights and helping us understand yet another busy day here. We covered a lot of ground today in Washington, and we've got one more tomorrow. Again, join us for more on jobs, the Labor Secretary, as we connect the dots between policy and business here on Bloomberg Radio, it's sound on. I'm Joe Matthew.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Carter